Would you turn in your Bibles this morning to Hebrews chapter 11? It's on page 1008, I think, in the church Bible. Hebrews chapter 11. I'm going to read verses 29 to 31. We're breaking into this great catalog of faith that uh, the writer gives to us. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we pray that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your law. For Jesus' sake, amen. Now, if you've been reading this section with us, and I know a number of you haven't been because you've just started coming to 10th, but if you've ever read it before, you'll know that there's a great catalog of famous people in this chapter. And up to this point, it has been individuals who've been selected and spoken about right, right up until this verse where uh, the faith that is in view is not so much the faith of an individual as the faith of a people, a particular people, the people of Israel. And so the title that we have this morning, The Faith of Israel, and there's a sense in which that, that very title is completely surprising, that we should even speak of the faith of Israel. Jesus referred, for example, to Israel, the Israel of His day, as a wicked and perverse generation. The writer of Hebrews has referred to the generation that accompanied Moses out of Egypt and, and went to the promised land through the desert. And uh, he says this about them back in chapter 3, for who were those who heard and rebelled? Was it not those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was God provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, who were disobedient, who were unable to enter, that is, enter the promised land because of unbelief? The very generation that we're reading about was a generation that would be characterized, by and large, by unbelief. And then there's the bigger picture, a picture that begins with a people called uh, under Abraham and a people who are responsible ultimately, calling on the name of their leaders to have the Lord of glory Himself crucified. It would be very easy for us to focus on the negatives. Prophet after prophet came to Israel. Jesus says about them, which prophet did you not persecute? Which prophet did you not persecute? What an indictment upon any people exposed to those who bring the Word of God to them that everyone who brought the Word of God to them, they persecuted in one form or another. The writer of the Hebrews then has been quite frank about the failures of 
Israel. And yet, here we come in verse 29 to refer to they. That's the plural. They means Moses and the children of Israel. Moses is not named here, but there are those we know alongside Moses who believed in God. See, I want to ask you a question this morning. Here you are in church, you have recited the Apostles' Creed, and you profess to be believers, but I want to ask you the question today, do you believe in God? Do you believe in God? I have a reason for asking that question. You will know that the Christian church worldwide, whatever denomination, whatever label it bears, wherever the name of Jesus Christ is confessed by those who would recite the Apostles' Creed and agree with what it says, across the board, around the world, are finding themselves exposed today in the newspapers and on television and by other means of media by horrific stories of moral failure and sin. Wherever you look, it is a universal phenomenon. The church has been found to sin. And in an article I read uh, this week in First Things magazine, one author writing about his own church, which isn't our church, but writing about his own church and about people caught up in this behavior, his summary is this. These people, these men, men particularly, do not believe in God. We, we just read this morning from Psalm 44, and in that Psalm we read the words together that God is a God who sees. God is a God who sees us. When we behave as if God doesn't see us, we behave as if we don't believe in God. Israel did not believe, at least the majority did not believe in God, though there were some who did. And so one of the authors has said that the faith that's talked about here is the faith of the true Israelites, the remnant, the elect, the Israel within Israel, as the Apostle Paul describes it. These were the people who received the promise of God and who believed the promise of God. Now you say, well, that was Israel. We're the church. Well, let me remind you of what our confession of faith says about the church. It talks about the visible church. That is, wherever you look in the world, depending on how much freedom there is to meet, you will see churches. You will see gatherings of God's people. You will see what we call the visible church. And our confession says the visible church is more or less visible, depending on circumstances freedom, and so on. But it goes on to say this, the visible church is Catholic and universal under the gospel. It's to be found everywhere. The church is Catholic. It is to be found everywhere. And everywhere it's to be found, it will be confessing what we confessed this morning in the Apostles' Creed, those essential elements of what it means to believe in the Christian God. And it goes on to say this, this visible church consists of all those throughout the world who profess the true religion. Particular churches 
are more or less pure. The purest churches under heaven are subject both to mixture and error. So he says there's a visible church, that is what people see. They see a big lump of Christians numbering billions, billions of people in the world. Within those, that church, that visible church, there are those who are pure, that is pure in their faith, real in their re relation with God, and those who are not. And even those churches that are pure, even the best of them, it says, are subject both to mixture and error. And we see this worked out in the church of Israel, and we see it worked out in the church today. In Israel, and I think perhaps even today, the vast majority are unbelieving. And yet what we learn from our passage today is that God is good to His church because of the faith of the believers within it. You think of Jesus sending His letters, you remember in the book of Revelation, to the churches. They're all churches, but Jesus addresses those within the church who hear His voice and are prepared to listen to Him. So my question to you this morning is, are you one of those people who believes in God? People who believe in God will see the seas part. That's the first thing we learn. By faith, the people cross the Red Sea as on dry land. It's a reminder of the story. You can read about it in Exodus 14 this afternoon, uh, where Moses, accompanying the people of God, they, they, they traveled out of Egypt. They go down to the Red Sea, and there they are on the banks of the Red Sea, and God causes there to be this great miracle by which the sea is parted. There are walls of water on either side. God not only parts the sea, but He lays down a new road for them. He, he breathes with His breath, and there it's like concrete. They cross through the Red Sea many, many miles to the other side, and they do so on dry, firm land. It's a miracle. It's a miracle that etched itself on the minds of Israel as generations remembered they were there, whether they were there as little children, seeing these massive walls of water, whether their parents told them or their grandparents told them. It was etched in their national consciousness, this mighty act of God. For 400 years, they had been in Egypt, and for some of that period, they had been slaves in Egypt. And as the pressures on them escalated, Moses came to visit Pharaoh. Some of them remembered Moses. Moses had sparked a little bit of a, a, a problem earlier on in his life when he inadvertently was guilty of manslaughter by slaying one of the taskmasters in, in an action trying to defend somebody that he was assaulting. But now this man, Moses, is back. There he is standing before Pharaoh. He's asking for the freedom of Israel. And events began to move quite fast. As uh, they left 
After the Passover, they left. They went down to the Red Sea. They found themselves trapped as they stood at the banks of the Red Sea. Two million people, men and women, boys and girls, with some of their pet dogs and cats and their pet cow and goat or whatever they brought with them. There they were on the banks of the Red Sea. And here is the Egyptian army bearing down on them in their Hummer chariots, coming down like a thunderous force, trapped between the sea and this army. That's where we find them. And they start to complain. They complain to the pastor. It always happens with God's people. And Moses was their pastor. That was one pastor that you don't want to have. Let me me tell you, two million of them in the desert for 40 years trapped with nowhere to go. And, and uh, no prospect of a call elsewhere. So there they were, and they're complaining. They're murmuring against Moses and saying, you've got us into this mess. You told us to follow you. Here we are. We're on the banks of the Red Sea. We have nowhere to go. The army is bearing down on us. What is the plan now, Moses? Moses didn't have a plan, but God had a plan. And Moses challenges the people. He speaks to the people. The Word of God stands still, he says, and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will work for you today, for these Egyptians that you see today. You shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, he says. And they listen to this. And uh, it's interesting what Moses goes on to say this, the Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. (laughs) Stop stop your complaining and your murmuring and your groaning. Be silent and watch what God is going to do. And then God intervenes and says to Moses, and you can be silent now too. Tell my people to go forward. And so there they went. They came to the banks of the Red Sea. This great miracle takes place, and into the sea they go all two million plus of them, across to the other side. God provides a way. Now, I want to pause there for a moment because this applies to us in our lives and to us as a church and in our church corporate life together. Even in our greatest extremity, even in the most acute difficulty, we are promised until Jesus comes back, the abiding presence of God. Here's how Isaiah puts it. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. God will preserve His church. Even when we're going through the waters of difficulty, even when we're perplexed, by the extremity of the situation, God will preserve His church. Sometimes there's a process we have to go through. Sometimes there are trials we have to face. Sometimes there's a Red Sea to cross, and we can't find any way across. Sometimes there are difficulties that we must overcome. But God has promised that He will preserve His church. And wherever God leads us, 
wherever He leads us as individual people, wherever He leads us as His church, in whatever circumstances we find ourselves, in whatever circumstances God ordains either for our church or for your life, where God calls us to be, He will be, and He will be with us in whatever our circumstances. Even when it comes to die, beloved, when you pass through the valley of the shadow of death, even then we can say, you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. We have the promise of God for this. We're told in Second Chronicles chapter 16, for the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show Himself strong in the behalf of those whose heart is perfect before Him. The eyes of the Lord are always upon His people. He's always there to be strong for us. He's always there to be with us. He's always there to see what's coming, to see what's around, to look out for you. He is always there for His people. And so we read in the story of, of Israel that the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea upon dry ground, and the waters were a wall to them on the right hand and on the left hand. must have been a terrifying experience, especially to get halfway across and then begin to wonder, well, God parted the seas back there, but supposing, supposing He stops keeping them apart, we're done for, we're drowned. But the God who parts the sea can keep them parted and get you to the other side. By faith, they crossed over to the other side. Now, not everybody believed, though. But even the unbelievers in the church benefited from the faith of those who did believe. We know that not everybody believed because that's what the New Testament teaches us. The Apostle Paul, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, says… Uh, that among them, with many of them, it says, God was not pleased. Though they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Everybody who crossed over was baptized into Moses. He was the leader. He was the, he was the redeemer. They were baptized into Moses as their redeemer and leader as they crossed with him over through the sea to the other side. And Paul says it's, it's, a, it's a picture, it's a type of baptism. What did the Red Sea do? The Red Sea put a line in the sand, literally, a line in the sand that separated His people from their enemies. It separated His people from the world. And baptism, which is a lot less water to manage, baptism is God's line in the sand that separates His church from the world. His church from the world. The church is the company of the baptized. Baptism is what distinguishes the church from the world. Well, the people of God then cross over to the other side. They're, they find their freedom. They're committed under Moses to the purposes of God. They, they engage with the Word of God that was given to them. They, they take the promise of the Word of God to themselves. They act in obedience based on the Word of God, and they arrive to safety on the other shore. 
but not the Egyptians. The very thing that provides salvation for God's people brings destruction on their enemies. We were crucified with Christ in baptism, buried with Christ in baptism, so that we might be raised with Christ into new life. The work of Christ is what saves us. The work of Christ is what condemns the world. It condemns the world. You see, those Egyptians, that Egyptian army, we're told in the Bible, was uh, thrust into physical darkness. So they're chasing the Israelites. They keep riding in their chariots. The Hummers are going as fast as they can go, which isn't very fast. And the horses are drawing them down uh, through the desert. Down they go. They, they, they go down somewhere in the dark. Then they hit the most perfectly paved area they've been on the whole journey. I don't know if any of their minds to ask themselves, who's been out here laying a highway in the desert? So there they are. It's pitch black. They can't see the walls of water. They just know that, that they're getting faster now. The, the, the Israelites are in front of them. They're chasing them and pursuing them, and, and everything is going so well. They're getting closer and closer and closer. They can hear in the distance. They can hear perhaps the voices of children until suddenly the, the light is switched on, and they see where they are. Horror of horrors, here are these walls of water, and the army is consumed by them. God will always preserve His church. Let Him deal with our enemies. That's not our job. We preach the good news of the gospel. We don't need to rain down in the world our condemnations. Let God do His job, and we preach the gospel. Jesus said, I came into the world not to condemn the world. There'll come a day when He will, but that men and women might be saved. By faith, seize part. By faith, strongholds fall. Look at the next verse. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they'd been encircled for seven days. Now, there's something missing here. If you know your Bible, you'll know there's something missing. If you don't know your Bible, you won't know you're missing anything, so I'm going to tell you for free. What's missing between them going into the Red Sea and going round the walls of Jericho? I'll tell you. Forty years are missing. Forty years. When they crossed the Red Sea to the other side, in a matter of uh, weeks at the most, they were at the River Jordan on the border of the very promised land. There they were, all of them, right there, part ready to cross over the Jordan into the promised land. That's what they've been told to do. That's where they were. They're ready to go. But then they decide to send a little delegation to the other side, just to check things out. They formed a committee or a commission. I don't know what it was. But they, they, they formed some form of delegation. They sent them to the other side to see what it was like. And they went, they looked, they reported back. There was a majority view. There was a minority view. The majority view was 
We can't do it. Oh, my word, we can't do it. There are forts. There are strongholds. They are fierce-looking people. There are giants in the land. It's a terrifying place to go. We can't cross over, not yet. And only two believers said, it's a land flowing with milk and honey. This is God's land. He's brought us here. It's ours. God will give it to us. But the majority of the people listened to the wrong voices. So what happens when the church of Jesus Christ is up again against a problem or a difficulty or a stronghold? There will always be those who will say, we can't, we can't make any hard decisions here. We can't do it. So no, we'll have to find something else to do. Here were these people when they got over to the other side, and they're now faced with this great city of Jericho. This time, they've learned. They've learned from 40 years of wandering in the desert. They didn't cross then. 40 years, they just went round and round, crisscrossed their tracks over and over again, past places they'd been before, round and round and back and forth, 40 years, until a whole generation died in the desert because they disobeyed God. But now they've crossed into the promised land. Here's the first obstacle. Didn't the naysayers say there were obstacles? Here it is. But this time they listened to God. They listened to God's servant, Joshua. They're Jesus. Yeshua is Jesus' name. The first Joshua brings them into the promised land, and they listen to him. And he says, here's God's way of bringing down the stronghold. March round the city every day for seven days in perfect silence. Well, that sounded like a great strategy, really, didn't it? That's a fantastic strategy for, for overwhelming some great fortified stronghold. That's a, that's a great idea. Where did you learn that from, Joshua? I mean, seriously? Surely there's other better ways of doing it. Let's form a committee and find how we can, can do it better than that. Well, there's always people prepared to do that. This is the Word of God. Go around it. Seven days in silence. On the last day, oh, I've got a real humdinger for you on the last day. This is going to really do it. On the last day, I want you to walk around the city seven times. And on the seventh time, on the last, the seventh day, I want you to sound the trumpets and everybody shout out. Shout loudly. That was the plan, and that's what they did. And on day seven, the walls fell. It wasn't the shouting. It wasn't the silence. It wasn't the trumpets. It was God. It was an act of God. It was God who caused it. It was God's intervention that caused it. But here's the principle. We are confronted by strongholds of error, strongholds 
of fortified sin in the society and the culture. We are confronted by strongholds of sheer invincible unbelief. What are we to do about it? I would have a discussion group, perhaps, on an away day. We talk about it. We come up with some strategies. How do we, how do we get to reach these people and so forth? Is that, is that what we do? Are we free to do that? I would say to you, we are not free to do that. We are not free to do anything other than what has been revealed to us to do. How are these strongholds going to be leveled? Here's what the Apostle Paul says. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. That is, they're not your bright idea or anybody else's bright idea. They have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. You see, what are our weapons? to make inroads in the world. We uh, have a five-year planning committee who's doing a lot of work, great work, and uh, they haven't asked me this question. But I would like to be asked, what is your plan for the next hundred years, or perhaps the next 200 years? Well, I say, Liam, you're you're not going to make 50 years, far less 100 years. Okay, that's, that's absolutely true. But every minister has to be thinking about the next 100 years. I want there to be a church in 100 years. How is that going to happen? Well, I'll tell you how it's going to happen. The Bible says that the means of preserving the church is the preaching of the Word of God, the prayers of God's people, and living a holy and godly life in the world. That's it. Using the ordinary means of grace, coming as we do to to sing God's praise, to ask God's blessing, to hear God's Word, That's it. We are an ordinary means of grace church. We believe the Bible when it comes to how churches grow, how churches survive, how churches are preserved in times of persecution. We follow the Bible. We learn from the history of the church. There's nothing magic. There's nothing to be discovered. There's nothing to be dreamt up. Brothers and sisters, this is it. This is all that I'm going to be cross-questioned about as, a, as an elder when I face Christ. Was the Word preached? Were prayers made? Did God's people be encouraged to live holy and godly lives in the world? That is all that matters, brothers and sisters. And if we do that, there will be a church here in a hundred years. It may be small and dwindling, but there'll be a church. It may be large and thriving, but there'll be a church. It's all that matters. 
And we need to challenge the prevailing culture that wants to modify and amend things because they have better ideas than God when it comes to His church. We are stuck with God's ideas because we believe God, and we believe in God, and we believe in God's Word. And that's been characteristic of this church for the last 200 years. The weapons of our warfare are spiritual weapons. The preaching of the gospel the prayers of the church, the holy lives of believers, the endurance of the saints under pressure, what John Milton called the unresistible might of weakness. Where this faith sees part, strongholds fall, and strangers are saved. That's where our third little vignette in this story comes. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient. This is the last extended mention of an individual in this whole catalog of faith. Beginning with Abel, it ends here with Rahab, the series of examples that are given here of how faith worked out finds its termination point right here. Now, it's interesting. I think since the period just before Jesus came into the world among the Jews, there was an attempt to, uh, shall we say, whitewash Rahab's reputation. And there have been points in the history of the church where individual theologians have tried to do the same. They've tried to argue that when it says that she was a prostitute, it really means she was an innkeeper. Well, <laughs> we're pushing it there, friends. Uh, if I tell you that the Greek word that's used in the Greek Old Testament and in the Greek New Testament is the word porne, that may just indicate to you that, in fact, we're pointing to something completely different. She was a Gentile. That's the first thing to say about her. She was an alien. She was a stranger to the holy family of Israel and the covenant with Abraham. And her conversion and her salvation is therefore a type and a pledge that God is going to call out of the world a church from among the Gentiles. She was a Gentile. She was an Amorite. The Amorites were a tribe, a race that had been devoted to utter destruction by God because of heinous, heinous sins. Archaeologists in the last 50 years have discovered more and more about the Amorites and their, and their practices that are just defy, defy conception. Make the Nazis look like a Sunday school picnic. Her salvation is a testimony to God's sovereignty in giving salvation, disposing salvation to whomever He pleases. Thirdly, Rahab was 
a prostitute. Thomas Aquinas, great medieval scholar, says he agrees with that, and that her hotel, he's mocking the people that call her an innkeeper, her hotel was a house of ill repute. But in houses of ill repute, that was where people were accepted for who they were. Nobody asked questions, which is why the spies who went to check out the city of Jericho went to her house. And there they met something that they were not ready for or prepared for. They met a believer. They met a believer. We shouldn't be surprised. When Paul writes to the church at Corinth, he says this about the church at Corinth, the sexually immoral, the idolaters, the adulterers, the men who practice homosexuality, the thieves, the greedy, the drunkards, the revilers, the swindlers. And he goes on to say this, such were some of you, but you were washed but you were sanctified. Yes, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. This woman lived at a time when pagan worship focused on the deification of natural instincts and forces, especially the sexual forces. Nearly all the worship practices involved in that ancient world, especially among the Amorites, involved giving license in that area. And no doubt she was swept up in that world. It may very well be that she'd been raised up as a child from her earliest days to act and perform in that, for, in that work. And here she is. That was her past. The Bible doesn't cover it up. The Bible wants you to see the grace of God here. You've come here this morning with your past. You'd rather it not be shouted from the housetops. You'd rather it never got into the Bible. You're fortunate because the Bible's closed. No more is going in. But here's the thing. God knows your past. He's not afraid to say what it was because He's forgiven your past. He's pardoned your past. And no matter what past you bring with you into this church this morning, let me say, Jesus Christ says to you, come and welcome to me. Whatever you've done, come and welcome to me. Because here's the fourth thing about Rahab. She was converted. Rahab was converted. You notice the, the mention here in our text of her treatment of the scouts, the spies who had snuck into Jericho to check out the disposition of the arms and the defenses. And she tells these men, she recognizes them to be Jews or, or Israelites. She recognizes these men, and she tells them, I, I know about your God. I, I've heard about the wonders of your God. I've heard about the crossing of the Red Sea and the overthrow of the, the Amorite kings and, a, and the crossing of the Jordan. They're all common knowledge. I've heard these things. She tells them that she's come to believe in their God, the God of Israel. Here's what she says to the spies. The Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. She has a robust view of God. 
He's not just in heaven and earth. He's on earth below. He is familiar with what's going on on earth below. And she says to these men, I know that the Lord has given you this land. Whatever her past was, she was converted, and she therefore enjoyed gospel privileges by God's almighty power, by free grace in God's rich mercy. She became the protector, no, protect, protectress. It's quite hard to say that on a Sunday morning. Of God's people. She preserved not only her own life, but the life of her entire family. You know, when you're converted, your family comes under the covenant protection. She was a Gentile, but she became part of the commonwealth of Israel. She was incorporated into the true church of God. She married a prince of Judah whose name was Salmon, an unfortunate name, but Salmon. And she had a son whose name was Boaz, who fell in love with a girl called Ruth, who had a grandchild called Jesse, who had a son called King David, who had a great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson called Jesus. Rahab gets honorable mention in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. Rahab gets honorable mention in this catalog of faith. When the apostle James in his little epistle wants an example of faith that works, he points to Rahab. And above all, Rahab is an heir of eternal life because of her connection with Jesus Christ. Now, what does this mean for you? What this means for you is that God sent His Son to seek and save such as she was. That God sends His gospel ministers to preach the good news to such as you are. That He ready stands to save all of us who come to Him. That there is joy in heaven when even one stranger, one sinner, repents and turns to God. And that glory and praise to God is offered by the church for such kindness to people, let's face it, like you and me. And what happens when you come? All your debts are paid. All your indebtedness is discharged, canceled. All the help you need is supplied by the Holy Spirit. Eternal life and pleasures forevermore. By faith, seas part, strongholds fall, and strangers are saved. Are you a stranger to God this morning? You can be saved. 
You can join us in the boat, as it were, in God's church, which He will never let fail for all of our sins, for all of our weakness, for all that we are riddled through with all kinds of issues, because we're composed of believers and unbelievers. Unbelievers. I finish where I started. Do you believe in God? Do you believe in God? Let's pray. Father, we pray that this morning you would so work in our hearts that we might be turned inside out before you. We pray that you would so work in our hearts that we trust in Christ and Christ alone for our salvation. We pray in his strong name. Amen.